0: The Jerusalem church faced a crisis. On the one hand, it was a crisis caused by the church's rapid growth during those first months and years. Growing pains, as you might call them, were bound to happen in a congregation which now numbered in the several thousands. But on the other hand, it was a crisis caused by sin. And it threatened to derail the church's ministry and to destroy the church's unity. Luke sets the stage for us in Acts chapter 6, and I would invite you to join me there this morning. Beginning in verse 1, he records, Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution." The church in Jerusalem was, at this early stage, entirely comprised of Jewish Christians. But first century Judaism was full of sectarian divisions, and inevitably these divisions carried into the church when members of the Jewish community were converted and were brought to faith in Christ. And Luke here mentions two divisions in particular which found their way into this Young newborn church. He mentions two, the Hellenists and the Hebrews. Now there's debate as to what the exact difference was between these two groups, whether the difference lay primarily in their language or their culture or their ethnicity. And the answer is probably a mixture of all three. The Hellenists, your Bible may have Greek speaking Jews. They were known as the Diaspora Jews. That is, they were ethnic Jews. They were Israelites by birth. Ethnic children and descendants of Abraham. But over the centuries, they had been dispersed and transplanted to other locales throughout the, first the Babylonian Empire, then the Persian Empire, then the Greek Empire, and then now the Roman Empire. Their dominant language would have been Greek. Indeed, they may not have spoken Hebrew at all. And along with adopting the Greek language, they had also absorbed into their culture many aspects of the Greek or the Hellenistic culture. So although they were ethnic and religious Jews, the center of their faith was not the Jerusalem temple. It was the Jewish synagogue where the prayers and the blessings And the sermons were spoken in Greek, and where the scriptures that were read were read from the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, rather than the Hebrew scrolls. And for whatever reason, these Hellenistic Jews had come back to Jerusalem and now were dwelling there, and archaeological evidence suggests that their number was great. It was a significant number of Greek-speaking Jews that dwelt in Jerusalem in the first century. The Hebrews, on the other hand, were Hebrew or Aramaic-speaking Jews who had been born and raised in Israel and had never left. The prayers, the blessings, the sermons, and the scriptures were entirely in Hebrew. Their synagogues were Hebrew. And although they spoke Greek, because that was the international language of trade and business, they had by and large resisted the Hellenizing influences of the Greek and the Roman cultures and had retained their own distinctive Jewish identity. So it's not difficult to see in that milieu how ethnic and racial tensions existed between these two groups, and how these tensions were then brought into the church when representatives of both groups were converted in those early days and were added to the number of disciples in the church at Jerusalem. Evidently, from its very inception, the church had taken upon itself the care of widows within the congregation. You need to remember that in the first century, there was no social security, there were no food stamps, there was no government welfare program designed to care for the aging poor in the community. If a woman's husband died and and she had no money or property of her own and she had no children or grandchildren to take care of her, she was utterly alone and she was absolutely helpless and dependent upon the generosity of others. And so from very early on in its existence, the church sensed a responsibility to care for such people within the church and even within the community at large. In fact, the church soon became famous for its care of the poor and the sick and the orphaned, the widows, the imprisoned, and the dying. The church has always seen as its responsibility the care of society's most vulnerable citizens. And in a rapidly growing church where the members numbered thousands upon thousands upon thousands, the number of widows that needed to be cared for by the church must have been absolutely immense. In fact, the needs of the, church, of the widows of the church at Ephesus were so great that Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 5 had to establish guidelines for who should receive the church's aid. He commanded in 1 Timothy chapter 5 that a woman's children and grandchildren, if she had them, should provide for her needs, 1 Timothy 5 4. And he even went so far as to threaten excommunication for those children who didn't look after their aging parents, 1 Timothy 5 9. In other words, When Luke speaks of the daily distribution, the daily distribution of provision to these widows in Jerusalem, this was a task that required a great deal of oversight and tremendous wisdom and organizational skill. And it was in that context that the problem arose. Whether it was perceived or whether it was real, the Hellenists accused the Hebrews of neglecting their own widows and showing favoritism to the Hebrew widows. And this accusation was particularly dangerous because the apostles themselves, the leaders of the church, were Hebrews. In other words, the Hellenists may have thought that this discrimination went all the way to the top. So I don't think... When we read Luke's, or Acts 6.1, we read Luke's description of the situation, I don't think that the tension or the potential for danger can be overstated. This issue could very well have split the church before its apostolic foundations were even established. The consequences would then be dire. The very fate of the church is at stake in Acts 6.1. And the apostles recognized this Now, there's quite a bit of debate as to whether these seven men are the church's first deacons. There are a lot of people who deny that this passage establishes the New Testament diaconate, and they will point to the fact that these seven men are nowhere called deacons, although related words are used in this passage. For instance, the daily distribution, verse 1, that word distribution is the related noun diaconia. And the task appointed to these men, what the apostles call serving tables, is the verb diakoneo. But I disagree that this doesn't represent the establishment of the New Testament diaconate. I think that's exactly what's going on. I think this occasion showed the apostles the need for a second office of leadership in the church, an office that necessitated men of wisdom, godliness, and respectability, the very qualifications that are outlined for deacons in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8-13, to as we'll see in a moment. So as we begin this morning, I want to make five observations about deacons from this seminal passage. Observations that are going to form the foundation for today's discussion. Here's observation number one from Acts chapter 6. Deacons are necessary. When the apostles said it is not right that we should give up the preaching of the word of God in order to serve tables, you could possibly get the idea that the apostles thought that the, the ministry to the widows was inconsequential and somehow beneath them. But I don't think anything could be further from the truth. Rather, I suspect that this statement comes across a little more harshly in our English translations than it was originally spoken. It is, however, an open acknowledgement of the priority of the Word of God within the church. The preaching of the word of God is the lifeblood of the church, and it is only by means of preaching that God saves sinners. No one is saved by eating bread. They're saved by feeding their souls on the bread of life, which is the word of the living God. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds forth from the mouth of God. Matthew four. 4. But, the da- without the daily distribution of bread to the widows, these widows would starve. And without wise, competent, spirit-filled men leading this necessary ministry and navigating the, the treacherous waters of racial and cultural bias, the church would fracture. The deacon ministry is not as important as the ministry of the Word, yet the deacon ministry is necessary in order for the ministry of the Word to be effective. Observation number two. Deacons must be men of character, conviction, and competence. The deacon ministry is so vital, in fact, that not just anyone can do it. It requires what the apostles called men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom. Why? All they're doing is passing out bread, right? No. One estimate puts the number of members and their families in the Jerusalem church, even at this early date, somewhere in the neighborhood of 20,000. This means that the number of widows and poor and orphans, which although they're not mentioned in this passage, were also under the care of the church. Those in need of daily assistance and the, and the amount of money required to fulfill this ministry, it was absolutely immense. A registry of the needy had to be maintained. Certain requirements had to be upheld, but they had to be upheld both with compassion and impartiality. A lot of food had to either be made or purchased, which meant that a lot of money needed to change hands. And furthermore, widows' homes needed to be visited. And all of these matters needed to be handled with grace and wisdom, which was needed to navigate this highly flammable situation. Character, conviction, and competence were an absolute necessity. Third, observe that deacons were selected by the church and ordained by the apostles. I think it's telling that the apostles did not unilaterally appoint seven men to the diaconate, but rather charged the church to choose for themselves and from among themselves qualified men, which parenthetically is what I'm going to ask you to do over the next month. Now, there was a lot of wisdom in this because the tensions were very, very high. It's worth noting that all seven of the names are Greek and not Hebrew. Derek Thomas comments, quote, It is hard not to draw the conclusion that the church did the bold thing, asking the party who was engaged in the complaining to sort out the problem for themselves. But empowering... The congregation to select their own deacons was not only wise, I think it's prescriptive. I think the church should select its own deacons today. This doesn't mean that the elders don't have a role in the process. I think it's reasonable to assume that the apostles would have vetoed the name of a man whom they didn't think was qualified, but all seven men that were presented were qualified, and so the apostles publicly appointed them, ordained them through prayer and the laying on of hands, and installed them in the deacon ministry. Observation number four. Deacons serve the church so that elders can shepherd the church. In other words, these two ministries go hand to hand and they work very closely together, and one makes the other Possible. The deacons were appointed to oversee the mercy ministry and the logistical necessities of the Jerusalem church so that the apostles could devote themselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. Now at this point, let me pause and let me just make a, a note of clarification. I am not equating apostles with elders. They're not the same thing. All apostles were elders, but only a few elders, namely 12, were apostles. Apostleship is a non-repeatable, non-transferable appointment from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Apostles and elders are not the same, but when the apostles disappeared from the scene of history... The responsibility for the leadership of the church and the ministry of the word and prayer passed on to the elders. They became the shepherds of the church. And so the point remains true today as it was in Acts chapter 6. Deacons serve the church. By overseeing the mercy ministry of the church, making sure that every member, every one of them, is fed, clothed, housed, visited, and cared for. Overseeing the logistical necessities of the ministry of the church so that the elders can devote themselves to shepherding the church, to leading, to teaching, and to caring for souls. Observation number five. An effective diaconate leads to an effective eldership, which leads to an effective church. When the deacons serve the church effectively, removing from the elders the burden of secondary yet necessary ministries, then the elders can give themselves to shepherding the church effectively. And when the elders shepherd the church effectively through prayer and the ministry of the word, the church grows. And that's precisely what happened in Jerusalem. Look at verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. If First Baptist Nixon wants to see verse 7 happen here, and we do, then We need to strive for a strong, healthy, biblical diaconate, group of deacons, and a strong, healthy, biblical eldership. And there are no no shortcuts. There are no other avenues to church health. A strong, healthy church has strong, healthy leadership, and strong, healthy leadership means strong, healthy deacons working together with strong, healthy elders. So, as we wrap up this four-part series, we've, we've dedicated the month of August to the issue of biblical church leadership, and as we bring this series to a conclusion by examining the topic of deacons, I would like to take the five observations we made from Acts chapter 6, combine it with a few more observations from a couple of other texts, namely 1 Timothy chapter 3, if you want to turn there with me, that's where we're going to be the rest of the time, and I want to draw some conclusions about the biblical office of deacon. I want to formulate our thoughts under three headings. The responsibilities of deacons, the requirements of deacons, and the reward of deacons. Let's look at the responsibilities of deacons. In my opinion, one of the most perplexing questions in contemporary ecclesiology, that's the theology of the church, is the question of what role a biblical deacon has to play in the 21st century American church. I don't know how many times I've been asked by deacons, I want to serve, but where? And that question is more difficult to answer than it first appears. So much has changed in the social and cultural conditions of America today that bear little to no resemblance to first century Jerusalem. In the first century world, for instance, there was no social safety net. There was no government welfare system which cared for the weakest and the most vulnerable members of society. That void, if it was to be filled, was going to be filled by the church, which stepped in to feed the hungry and clothe the naked and house the homeless and care for the sick and the dying and visit those who were in prison. And the church continued to fulfill that role century After century, after century, for instance, Derek Thomas in his commentary cites the example of John Calvin in the city of Geneva in the 16th century. He wrote that Calvin carried on the same tradition. In Geneva, he reformed diaconal ministries, emphasizing the need for the church rather than the state to care for the poor. Under his direction, Geneva built hospitals, built schools, and took in some 50,000 refugees. In fact, to this day, 16th century Geneva stands as one of the greatest community development projects in all of history. And overseeing that massive mercy ministry was a cadre of godly, qualified deacons. But in 21st century America, the government seeks to meet most of those needs, health care, food, housing, through its many social welfare programs like Social Security or Medicare or Medicaid or food stamps or a host of other programs. I want you to hear me. I am not making a political statement here. I happen to believe that providing for the weakest and most vulnerable members of society is a legitimate function of the state. And I'm in favor of a government trying to do so, even if I think there might possibly be more effective and efficient ways of going about it. So I'm not denigrating our social safety net. But the fact remains that what used to be the sole domain of the church and its deacons has now been encroached upon by the state and its officers. So what do we do? Ask the deacons. Well, even though the landscape of mercy ministries may have changed, many of the needs remain the same. There exists within the 21st century America gaping holes in the social safety net. And the church must step in to address problems of homelessness and hunger and poverty and illiteracy and crisis pregnancy and adoption and more. Mercy ministry is still absolutely vital to the health and the identity of the church. So much so that Jesus made it an identifying mark of true faith. Matthew 25 still applies to the New Testament church. Remember, that's the parable of the sheep and the goats. What marks the difference between sheep and goats? Well, Matthew 25, 34, Jesus says, when he returns, then the king will say to those on his right, the sheep, Or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. That's what the righteous do. The righteous are involved in such labors of love as a fruit of true, genuine, saving faith. Healthy churches actively move towards human suffering and they seek to alleviate it crisis pregnancy is the domain of the local church foster adoption is the domain of the local church illiteracy is the domain of the local church. Hunger is the domain of the local church. Homelessness is the domain of the local church. And who in this church is to lead the charge? Deacons. But, in addition to the mercy ministry of the church, I think there's another role that deacons were intended to fulfill. Biblical deacons seem to oversee and administrate the day-to-day logistics of church life. I want you to listen. I'm going to read to you three paragraphs from three different books addressing this function of deacons. The first one comes from Benjamin Merkel. He's from the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and he wrote an excellent book entitled 40 Questions About elders and deacons and in a chapter on the function of deacons he says this quote the Bible does not clearly indicate the function of deacons but based on the pattern established in Acts 6 with the Apostles and the seven it seems best to view the deacons as servants who do whatever is necessary to allow the elders to accomplish their God-given calling of shepherding and teaching the church. Just as the apostles delegated administrative responsibilities to the seven, so the elders are to delegate responsibilities to the deacons so that the elders can focus their efforts elsewhere. End quote. Wayne Grudem in his landmark systematic theology looks at the qualifications for deacons outlined in 1 Timothy 3 and deduces their function from it. He says, quote, Deacons seem to have had some responsibility in caring for the finances of the church because they needed to be people who were not greedy for gain, verse 8. They perhaps had some administrative responsibilities in other activities of the church as well because they were to manage their children and their own households well, verse 12. They may have also ministered to the physical needs of those in the church or community who needed help, Acts 6. Moreover, if verse 11 speaks of their wives, as he thinks it does, then it would also be likely that they were involved in some house-to-house visitation and counseling because wives are to be no slanderers. It would do no good for deacons if their wives, who would no doubt also be involved in prayer and counseling with the deacons, spread confidential matters around the church. So Grudem says, just look at their qualifications in 1 Timothy chapter 3, and you can assume that they were involved in finances, administration, and visitation. Phil Newton, finally, in his book on church leadership, writes this, quote, in the servant role, deacons take care of those mundane and temporal matters of church life so that elders are free to concentrate on spiritual matters deacons provide much-needed wisdom and energy to the ample physical needs in the church, often using such provision as opportunities to minister as well to the spiritual needs of others, end quote. So you draw those three quotations together, and what they suggest is that although conclusive, determinative biblical evidence for the roles and responsibilities of deacons is scarce, we can safely surmise that deacons oversaw a host of logistical logistical matters that were absolutely essential to an effective ministry. But if taken on by the elders, these logistical matters would hinder their own ministry of leading and teaching and shepherding. Now again, I think we're faced with a hurdle in our 21st century American context, especially in the Baptist church. And that is, here's the problem as I see it, most logistical matters in the church are administrated not by deacons, but by a host of committees and ministry teams within the congregation. Once again, I think deacons have been edged out of their proper domain. Church finances are now managed by a finance committee. Church facilities are now overseen by a building and grounds team, and so on and so forth. And I suggest that the problem arose a couple of hundred years ago when most Baptist churches abandoned a plurality, a biblical plurality of elders. Here's what happened recognizing inherently the need. For shared responsibility and shared accountability, what these churches did was to elevate their deacons to the functional role of elders. And so deacon boards thus became decision-making bodies to which the pastor, the one pastor, was accountable and often with disastrous consequences because elders are not deacons and deacons are not elders. This in turn left All of the various ministries of mercy and church logistics vacant, and so the church formed committees to fill those needs. But in recent generations, as Baptist churches have been recovering the biblical plurality of elders, I think this has left our deacons out in the cold, so to speak. They're servants with nowhere to serve. I don't think it's coincidental that you don't find committees in the New Testament. There was no need for them. We had deacons. Now, when we wrote the new First Baptist Nixa Constitution, we sought to address this issue, and we did to some extent. The new constitution disbanded most of the church committees. We call them ministry teams here. And it calls for a deacon to lead each one of the ministry teams that remain. And this is a step in the right direction, but as I studied this passage, I don't think it goes far enough. I think we need to empower our deacons to fulfill their biblical role as God called, church-appointed, elder-ordained servants of the church as the Bible establishes them to be. So that's the responsibilities. Secondly, as to the requirements of deacons, what kind of men must they be? Well, if they're going to handle the extensive mercy ministry of the church and the extensive logistical needs of the church, they need to be the best kind of men. In Acts chapter 6, the apostles stipulated that the deacons must be men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom. In 1 Timothy 3, the apostle Paul further elaborates upon those requirements. Beginning in verse 8, "...deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience." And let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, literally women, likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. Now, You'll notice, I'm sure, that the qualifications for deacons are not terribly different from the qualifications for elders that we covered over the last two weeks in verses 1 to 7. That's because deacons need to be the same caliber of men as elders. The only significant difference is that the elders need to be able to teach and deacons do not because elders fill the teaching office of the church while deacons don't. So rather than go phrase by phrase through this passage on deacons and cover again ground that we've already tread over the last two weeks, I'm simply going to give you three overarching categories of qualifications that we find in 1 Timothy 3. Number one, deacons must be men of character. They need to be men of good repute, Acts 6.3. They need to be dignified, not double tongued, not addicted to much wine, and not greedy for dishonest gain. First Timothy three eight. They need to prove themselves blameless. First Timothy three ten. Their wives must also be women of character. They need to be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded and faithful in all things. Verse eleven. Deacons need to be men who are faithful in marriage and morally pure, which as I explained a few weeks ago is the way I I think we're to understand husband of one wife. Biblical deacons are entrusted with a lot of responsibility in the church. They handle a lot of money. They go into widows' homes, they go into hospital rooms, and they go into other places where people are vulnerable to being taken advantage of. And they need to be trustworthy. Therefore, they must be men of exemplary character. Second, they need to be men of conviction. They must hold to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, says verse 9. And I take that to imply that deacons in the course of their ministering to physical needs wind up, just as a matter of course, ministering to spiritual needs as well. And they need to be competent to do so. When they go to a hospital room and they sit beside the bed of someone who's dying, they need to be able to take this Word and apply it to their hearts to help that person overcome fear with faith. Therefore, they need to know the Word of Christ if they are to minister in the name of Christ. Third, they need to be men of competence. Just like the elders... They need to manage their children and their own households well, says the second half of verse 12. I take this to imply that deacons are administrating certain logistical ministries of the church like finances and facilities as well as the massive mercy ministries that we find in Acts chapter 6. Their management of the home is the training ground for their management of the church. Therefore, they need to be capable, competent men, or as the apostles described them in Acts 6, men who are full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom. Finally, let me say a word with regard to the reward of deacons. Paul addresses that issue in verse 13 of 1 Timothy 3. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Paul mentions two rewards which come to deacons who serve well. Number one, he says that they receive the respect and esteem of the church. I think that's the sense of they gain a good standing for themselves. A church ought to highly esteem those who serve it well as deacons because they pour out their time, their resources, their energies, and their very lives for the good of the church. Secondly, he promises that they receive confidence and assurance in their faith in Christ, which if you think about it is an incredible promise, and it's one that needs to be remembered by some of you who struggle with the assurance of salvation. Philip Ryken, commentator on this book, writes, quote, for those who sometimes doubt their salvation, this is an important lesson to learn. Assurance of faith does not come through introspection, through looking in at yourself and trying to remember a day and an hour where I gave my heart to Christ. That's not ever going to find you assurance. And if it does, it's not a well-grounded assurance in any case. Rather, assurance of faith comes Not through introspection, but through service. Those who labor for the Lord most actively love Him and actively love Him are most confident. Let me read that again. Those who labor for the Lord most actively love Him most confidently. That's what he said. Deacons who serve well will find their confidence in Christ rising with every year of effective and faithful service because they're serving, so says First Peter 4.11, not in their own strength, but in the strength which God provides. And as they continue to serve in the grace and the strength that God provides, their confidence that they are in Christ grows and grows and grows. And that's their reward. They gain the respect and the esteem of the church that they serve. And they gain great confidence in their faith in Christ.